Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. Today we're going to be talking about an article entitled Inappropriate Patient Sexual Behavior Directed Towards United States Physical Therapy Clinicians and Students, Prevalence and Risk. I'd like to welcome our two discussants today. The first is Dr. Jill Boisenault. She's Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Health Sciences at the George Washington University. And Dr. Ziade Cambier, who's a physical therapist at the Swedish Medical Center in Seattle, uh, Washington. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. I thought I would begin by doing a brief synopsis of their article, and then we'll go into a series of questions and discussions about their work. First, let me thank both of you for publishing your work in PTJ. I really enjoyed reading your study. I recommend it to all of our listeners. In terms of the synopsis, the authors point out that we have not really had much research on this topic since the 1990s, and few physical therapy risk factors for inappropriate patient sexual behavior have been identified in past research. And so the focus of this study was to look at both career-wide and 12-month exposure to inappropriate patient sexual behavior among both physical therapists physical therapist assistants, and students of physical therapy and physical therapy assistant students, and to look at identified uh, risk factors. There were 892 participants in the survey who were recruited through uh, physical therapy and physical therapy assistant academic programs, as well as sections of the American Physical Therapy Association. In terms of the main findings, Uh, The authors report that career prevalence among these respondents was 84%, and the 12-month prevalence of inappropriate patient sexual behavior was 47%. They did a series of statistical models looking at risk factors, and for those focused on inappropriate sexual behavior over the past 12 months, the following risk factors emerged. Fewer years of direct patient contact, routinely working with patients who had cognitive impairment, being of the female persuasion and male patient gender. So, Jill and Ziadi, in your introduction, you you note that there are really four types of workplace violence that one can think about, physical, psychological, sexual, and racial. Could you talk a little bit about what led you to focus on inappropriate sexual behavior among these respondents? Yeah, this is the Adi. I think each type of violence is very important to research. And in the healthcare literature over the last decade, a number of studies have looked at the prevalence of all four, and that's very valuable. But I think as we take the next step and what can we do about these types of violences, there are real differences in terms of risk factors, in terms of applicable laws and considerations and what kind of response to make between physical violence and sexual violence, between sexual violence and racial violence. And so it makes sense to separate them out for the more in-depth research. And my particular interest in sexual violence comes from my background. I've got a, a BA in women's studies, and I taught women's verbal and physical self-defense 
against sexual harassment and sexual assault for five years, and I also served on a board of directors of a small company where I oversaw the development and implementation of their first sexual harassment policy. So when in my first year of PT school, after our first clinicals, one of my colleagues shared a story with me about severe and repeated IPSB that she faced at her clinical. I was really dismayed to learn that her CI didn't provide her with any support, and the senior PTs in the department made a joke out of what was for her a very traumatizing experience. So it made me wonder what I could bring in terms of my previous skill set to my new profession, and I've been working on this problem ever since. It's a nice blending of your past experience as well as what you're doing now. And I would add to that, this is Jill, uh, I had the privilege of hearing Ziadi speak at an APTA Next conference where she did two two-hour seminars on how to deal with IPSB, and I'm going to abbreviate inappropriate patient sexual behavior as IPSB as we go along because it's such a mouthful. And Ziadi did such a wonderful job at the conference that I was intrigued not only by the topic, but partially because I had this happen to me on a couple of different occasions with different types of patients and different settings and different kinds of IPSB behavior, but also because I also have a background in women's studies. My PhD minor was in women's studies, and my specialty area of practice has been women's health. And it occurred to me that perhaps women's health practitioners, especially those who work in pelvic floor dysfunction where they're doing examination and treatment in intimate body areas, might be at increased risk for IPSB behavior. And Ziadi and I spoke about this at length after her seminars. And it became clear to us that we couldn't really examine that question about pelvic floor work without really going back and doing an entire survey about this since it had been since the 1990s that this work had been done. So one thing led to another, and we decided to go full force into looking at all of this. And I did want to take just a moment, in addition to answering your question, Alan, is to look at the different types of IPSB because not only had the research not been done for a really long time, but we felt it was really important to look at prevalence based on the categorization of IPSB and all the different types of IPSB. And so using some of those surveys from the 1990s, we were able to categorize it as mild, moderate, or severe. And mild goes all the way from feeling that you're being stared at or ogled, asking for a date, giving a romantic gift, those kinds of things, to moderate where you might be propositioned for sexual activity, and then all the way to severe where patients exposing themselves, masturbating in a session, or worse, grabbing or assaulting you or harassing you outside of the workplace. And these things, after reading the literature, were so worrisome and troublesome that I think it was a no-brainer for the two of us to want to uh, redo some of the work from the 90s and to look more carefully at this. I appreciate you breaking it down. I think that's very helpful for our listeners. You mentioned the literature, and that brings up another question that struck me in reading uh, the background to your work. You noted a recent meta-analysis that focused on nurses and uh, workplace violence among nurses, and 136 articles from 38 different countries were reviewed, and in that work, 12% of 
of respondents reported rates of exposure to sexual harassment over the previous six months, and 17% over the previous year, and 39% over the course of their careers. Why do you think the prevalence findings in those studies was so much different from what you saw in your work? Well, I think the, the biggest reason there is what are they asking about? Inappropriate patient sexual behavior or sexual harassment. And IPSB is something you can really look at objectively. Has a patient brought you a romantic gift, yes or no? Has a patient masturbated in front of you, yes or no? Whereas sexual harassment is, by legal definition, subjective. It depends on the person who's being targeted by the behavior feeling uncomfortable. So you may have two individuals who both got a dozen red roses from their patients on Valentine's Day, and one of them feels uncomfortable and feels sexually harassed, whereas the other one doesn't feel uncomfortable. So the prevalence rates are going to be much higher in surveys where they ask about behavior versus surveys where they ask about sexual harassment, and that, that is consistent through the literature over the last 30 years. If you look at DeMaio, he did one of the first initial studies on IPSB and physical therapy in 1997. He did the one in the United States surveying APTA members. He found that 81.5% of respondents, that was the prevalence rate for the career, had experienced IPSB. But then he asked follow-up questions where he had each type of IPSB, he had the respondents rate on a scale from completely not harassing to severely harassing. And he actually also came up with a prevalence rate for sexual harassment of 63.4%. So you can see that there was a significant portion of people had experienced an inappropriate behavior without feeling sexually harassed by it. I appreciate the distinction that you draw between the two. And that leads me to a question having to do with your survey instruments. You noted in your article that you did some specific changes in the instrument to to increase the reliability of the responses. Could you talk a little bit about what you did to enhance the instrument that you used? Sure. We did a reliability study and a validity study. From the validity study, we were able to find some wording that was ambiguous to some of the readers, and we changed the questions to make them clearer. From the reliability study, we determined that the formatting of the questions was leading some people to leave off responses. We had multiple columns across a page, and it required the respondent to look at the type of IPSB and then answer multiple questions across the page. And we found that some of the kappa values, those values that tell us, you know, how much measurement agreement there was, we found some lower kappa values as we went across the columns. And in fact, some people forgot to answer all of the questions across the columns. So we determined that it was better to make the survey longer and put each question as a single question with a response required versus having multiple columns requiring the reader to go across and answer them. And that enhanced the responses and that we had virtually no blank questions on the final survey fielding, which was a a big plus. I think it's a real strength in the work that that you did on the questionnaire. gives one a lot of confidence in the responses. You also noted in your article 
appropriately so, that your respondents came basically from a convenient sample. When you looked at the demographic background of your respondents, can you talk a little bit about whether or not there were specific biases that were noted in the sample? I think the one that jumps out to us first is gender. Eighty percent of our respondents were female, and we looked at APTA data from 2013 for membership, and 70 percent of APTA membership in 2013, the last year that full data is available for, 70 percent were female. So it's not terribly skewed, but it is somewhat skewed that we had many more women responding than men. In terms of professional status, we would have liked to have had more PTA and PTA student responses. We only had 6% of our respondents were PT assistants and 1% were PTA students. In I looked up data for the United States to see how we compared in the workforce data available from 2016, 72% of workforce data for our profession 72% are PTs and 28% are PT assistants. So we were just a little bit low on the PT assistant side of things, and so it might be a little more difficult to generalize the results to that population. And finally, I think our age ranges, there was 26% of our sample were less than 30 years old, and that's higher than... APTA's data bank, for example, which shows 15% less than 30 years old. So, again, a little bit skewed on the younger side. Can you recall and discuss whether or not you had enough respondents among the students to talk about prevalence rates among students as compared to therapists or PT assistants? We had 139 students out of the 892 completed surveys. And it was pretty amazing that in the past 12 months, 58% of students had experienced any type of IPSB, any means that we collapsed all three categories, mild, moderate, and severe, put them together. That's the any category. So 58% of those 139 students had experienced IPSB in the last 12 months compared to 42% for the non-students. So that's pretty telling that being a novice puts one at risk. That leads me to another question that really struck me, and you discussed this in your article. You noted that entry-level training in inappropriate patient sexual behavior was not found to be protective in this study. In fact, it was associated with higher reported rates. you care to comment on that and the implications <laughs> of that finding? I think both of us do. I, I guess I'll start. First, I want to point out a couple things. It was only in the univariate analysis, not in the multivariable analysis, that that came out as a risk factor. So, you know, multivariable analysis is stronger. But even so, I think it's important to remember that we did not analyze that data controlling for professional status. In other words, we collected data on whether you were a student or whether you were a clinician and whether you were PT or PTAs and so forth. So we can't say whether people who answered yes, that they had entry-level training and therefore, and then yes, they had IPSB events, we can't say whether these were current students. The training could have been 40 years ago. So that's one, I think, important piece to think about. 
we would really get better data, of course, if we were able to do a prospective study of entry-level education and provide them with IPSB information and education and then follow them for 12 months and see whether they actually experience the IPSB. And Ziadi, I think you had something you wanted to add there. Yeah, I think the entry-level training was associated with higher reported rates. And then all the other training we looked at, in-service training and workplace training, also was not associated with either lower or higher rates. And so I think what this tells us is that in our study, it shows that training isn't preventative. Now, that doesn't mean it's not valuable. It can help people prepare. It may lead to quicker and more positive resolution. There is some indication in the nursing literature that being trained and feeling like they know what to do can decrease the psychological, the negative psychological effects of sexual harassment and IPSB, but it doesn't actually prevent the events from happening as far as we can tell. In terms of why we saw increased reporting from those with entry-level training, one theory is that Getting that training in the entry-level education increased awareness of the problem for those individuals, and they may have been more likely to recognize and recall IPSB. So when they filled out the surveys, they may have remembered more events and reported them. We don't know for sure whether they experienced more events. We only know they reported more events. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you've already spoken about the potential value of education, You mentioned that it might be useful to have better workplace policies and support. What are the kinds of policies and support you think would be helpful to both the clinicians and to students of the professions? One thing I wanted to point out about this is that our survey not only looked at prevalence and risk, but it also asked how clinicians and students responded to IPSB and whether they found those responses to be impactful. And we are in the process of analyzing that data right now and hope to publish a follow-up paper in the coming year about this. But in the meantime, I think we can say a few things about the kinds of policy and education that we think would be helpful, and Ziadi can do that for us. Just looking at the literature on policy, there isn't much. There isn't much in terms of model policies or recommendations. But I think it's important that IPSB is clearly stated as something that won't be tolerated in the policy manuals. And there was a suggestion in one dentistry article that facilities post in their waiting rooms that they have sexual harassment policies that apply to both staff and patients so that patients understand that they can be discharged if they behave badly. But I also think policies should establish options and procedures for staff, such as when they can have a a second staff member in the room, when and how to transfer patients, when and how to terminate care, you know, how to use behavioral contracts, how to use warning letters, but perhaps most importantly, training supervisors to provide support and give staff choices on how to deal with inappropriate patients. We found a couple of very disturbing verbatim comments from our survey respondents that spoke to the fact that when they reported their IPSB, they were not taken seriously or they were not helped by the supervisor or administrator, or even in one comment, they were punished essentially for reporting, so it stifled any thought of reporting in the future. Very sobering. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time today to talk about your work. And again, I want to thank you for publishing your study in physical therapy. I really enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed talking to you about the work, and I'm delighted that you're continuing to pursue it. I think it's a really important area of investigation, and I look forward to reading more in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us.